unwilling to engage with people around him, unwilling to engage with God. And now we find him returning to God. And it happens in the most unusual of places, inside a large fish in the midst of a storm. So this is what we're looking at today. From running to hiding to now returning and being restored in God's presence, we look at chapter 2. We'll read the whole chapter. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, we're looking at this passage under three headings, so three points to the sermon today. We're going to consider first where Jonah was. It's important for us to see where this prayer happens, from where it springs up. Secondly, how he prayed. What was his prayer like? What was he actually thinking about and praying about? And lastly, what he discovered. He discovered something very important. He learned a very important spiritual lesson that we will also like to learn today. Where he was, how he prayed, and what he discovered. All right. So first, let's consider where Jonah's return to God, his repentance, his restoration happened. He is in the belly of the fish, right? Very clear from the text. He had run from God. God sent a storm. People threw him into the storm, and he is eaten by a fish. Jonah's prayer comes from this, this, the deep, from the heart of the seas as he prays. It comes from this very, very constrained physical space. The fish can't be that big that he would feel comfortable in it, right? He's uncomfortable. He, he has barely survived the storm. There's all that stuff that's happening uh, around him, and the language he's using, it's as if he thinks he's dead. In fact, some commentators say that he died and he rose again. Maybe. I don't think you have to go quite that far. But in his mind, he is certainly feeling as if he's dead. So he's talking about uh, the pit, right? God saving him from the pit. That's, that's a Hebrew expression for death. He's talking about the, the depth of Sheol, right? The, this, this place on the other side, this, this realm of the dead. So in his mind, th- this is, these are desperate circumstances. He is in the depths of of despair and suffering, and he is praying to God. And whatever happens here, whatever spiritual restoration, whatever uh, spiritual lesson he learns, whatever spiritual transformation that happens here, it happens in the depths. It happens in this place of God's discipline, 
of God's providential discipline on Jonah. Jonah had to be brought low. He had to be put in a situation where he could be restored to God's presence. Otherwise, he would keep running. He would keep hiding. You see, he would not have returned unless God threw him into the storm and so constrained him, so just kept him in place, kept him attentive to him, that he finally was able to learn about God's grace. This is God's providential care for his servant. God is not letting him run away. He continues to pursue him, and he puts him right in the right situation where Jonah can be restored, where he can learn, where he can repent and return to God. Now, the illustration I think of when I, I think of this passage is, uh, is, is one of a mother, I read it somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, but a mother carrying her toddler uh, over a, a, a dangerous, treacherous mountain path. And so the mother knows that if, if she would just simply let the toddler go, that the toddler would likely miss a step and slip and fall to her death. So the mother grabs the toddler and holds her close to herself, right? The toddler isn't happy about that. The kid doesn't know what's going on. And so the kid just feels restricted and limited, and his, her freedom has been taken away. And so, but the mom holds her tight. And she doesn't let go, even when the toddler cries. Because the mom knows that if she lets go, the consequences for the child could be potentially fatal. So just as the child is struggling in this very restricted, right, constricted space in her mother's arms, so is Jonah struggling with God in the belly of the fish, and he's learning something, he's growing. He's, he's learning to trust God just, just like a child is learning to trust her parent even as she is herself limited and her freedom has been taken away. Now, I have every parent knows what it's like. You walk with your child and you hold their hand really tight, right? And they try to run away and they pull away. I have dislocated two of my children's wrists at different times by doing that. Not on purpose, but it happens. Most, most parents would tell you that happens. Uh, did my children like that? No, it hurts. Well, one of them I was able to pop back in, so... It wasn't, a, it wasn't a big deal. You can do that, by the way. The other one, we had to go see a doctor. That was the first one. The second one, I learned. But the first one, we had to go see a doctor to take care of that. But, but what was I trying to do? Was I trying to hurt my child? No. I was trying to protect my child. We were crossing a very busy parking lot after church, and there were lots of cars and lots of people running around. And, and I think this was probably my oldest, so she must have been like three or four. And they don't know what's going on. And so it's to, up to the parent to hold them close. But I am, of course, I'm deliberately limiting their freedom. I'm hurting them in a sense so I could protect them. This is what's happening with Jonah. God is throwing him into this fish, keeping him there, limiting his freedom so that God can speak to him, so God could save him. The, this belly of the fish becomes a womb of Jonah's second birth. This is how I take this passage. I think something happens in Jonah's heart that is so significant that it returns him back to God. He's been a runaway, though very knowledgeable, very moral, very religious, but he's been a runaway. And now God gets him back. And he does that by putting him in a very difficult situation. So whatever happens here, whatever good comes out of it, happens in the depths. It happens 
in this very tight place. And so it is often that at our lowest, just like at Jonah's lowest, God does one of his greatest works. Jonah's heart is changed because God wasn't holding back, because God did these dramatic things in Jonah's life so he could change his heart. One church father says this, those who have buried themselves in the bowels of holy humility are all the closer to the highest. Thus, when Jonah prayed from the depths, he quickly gained the gifts of the highest Redeemer. Now, that's true. That's, that's a common principle in Scripture, that at our lowest, God does something that's the greatest. That at our lowest, God is at his highest. That we learn things down low that we can use when, when the circumstances have changed. We can use those lessons, but we can, learn, we can only learn those lessons in the depths. You don't learn those lessons in the heights. Charles Spurgeon said, He that cries out of the depths shall soon sing in the heights. But you can't sing in the heights unless you have prayed and cried out out of the depths. Here's a biblical illustration of that. In Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35, there's a wonderful statement of God's power and authority. One of those passages that makes it into our songs and hymns and and is often quoted in in, in prayer meetings and Bible studies. This is a wonderful expression of God's sovereignty, God's control over the world and the nations. King Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, blesses the Most High, this is verse 34, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's one of the clearest expressions of God's sovereignty in Scripture. But, but it's, it's coming from a pagan king, right? A very ambitious king, one that thought that he ruled the world, even the host of heaven. This is He thought he was fully in control over his empire that was growing larger and larger. So how did he, this pagan king, get to a point where he could learn a truth like that and express it in a hymn like this? What happened? Well, you you only need to look one verse earlier. So just go back one verse in the passage, and this is what it says. He, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. God humbled him. This is how he learned that God was sovereign. It wasn't a truth that was learned at the peak of his power. It was a truth learned at the lowest point, when he was acting like an animal. That's when he learned. That's why God did that, so he would learn. And so in our lives, too, we learn these, these big spiritual lessons. We learn who God is really, what God is really like, who he really is, at our lowest moments, not at our highest. So if you are in the depths, if you feel like lately you've been praying out of those kind of places where it seems like everything is just closing in on you, you're overwhelmed, Right? You're confused. You don't know what your future is. You don't know what God is doing. 
If you feel like this is where you are, you're learning something very, very valuable that you can only learn there, which is why God is putting you there. So in one sense, this is very much a blessing, a gift from God. That God is willing to do something like that for you. That he would deliberately put you in a situation like that. That he would allow the circumstances to form in this way. So you would feel like you're in the, in the deeps of Sheol. So you would feel like you're in the pit. So that you can learn what God is really like. Who he is, what his nature is, what his plan is for you. In our Lenten devotional, uh, we've been following, or some of us have been following uh, these last few weeks. I think this is probably Friday or Saturday. One of the prayers, closing prayers, had this request. So, so this is what some of us have prayed this past week. As water rests not on barren hill summits, but flows down to fertilize lowest vales, so make me the lowest of the lowly, that my spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. The image is that the water flows downward. It doesn't stay at the peaks. And so the most fertile places are not high, but they're low. And so the prayer is, make me the lowest of the lowly. Put me in those low places because this is where growth happens. This is where the soil is ripe for the fruit of the Holy Spirit to, to come up. Now, we pray prayers like that, and if you follow the devotional, I'm sure you've prayed this prayer. We sing songs like that, creating me a clean heart, right? I mean, those, those, this, is, this is part of our language at church and, and hopefully in our own lives as well. The question is, do we mean it, right? Are we sincere about it? And when God throws us into that low place, what is our reaction? Do we revert back to the pagan way of thinking and saying, this isn't fair, God, what are you doing? I'm not going to follow you if you're going to do this to me. Or do we take it with gratitude and we say, God is teaching me something. God is changing my heart. And it can't be changed unless I'm here, unless I linger here, unless I learn, unless I pay attention, unless I start praying from the depths of these kinds of experiences. So this is where Jonah is. And it's, it's crucial for us to understand because the rest of the prayer doesn't make sense unless we know where he's praying from. But now let's look at the prayer. How does he pray? Well, first, and obviously, he looks to God. He addresses God. This may seem like an obvious condition to any prayer, right? If you pray, you're going to pray to God. But remember that Jonah is running and hiding from God. He was trying to get away from God's presence, and now, now, he deliberately and willfully enters into God's presence in prayer. Something has happened in his heart, right? Something is, is happening here. The Lord is doing something in his heart. He's being changed because he used to run from God. And now he turns around and he approaches God. He goes into God's presence. Now, granted, he can't go anywhere else. He's there, right? God put him there and God is going to talk to him. But he turns to God. Something has happened in his heart. Verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Temple is a, is a symbol of his presence, of God's presence. Jonah was trying to get away from this symbol, from the land of Israel where God dwells, where God works. He's trying to get away as far as he could, the opposite direction from where God was sending him. And now that he thinks he's gotten away far enough, he's realizing he needs God. 
And so he turns around. He approaches him. He goes into God's presence through prayer. Now, that's how it works with us, right? You run away from God just, just far enough so you could sin, so you can do whatever you wanted to do, so God isn't part of that. You, you block him off just enough so you can pursue something you want to pursue. And then when you start feeling that God is withdrawing, that God isn't pursuing you anymore, that's scary, right? It horrifies us, and then we turn quickly and go run back to God. This is what Jonah is experiencing. He wanted to run from God, but once he ran from God, he's realizing, I, I can't live without him. So he's turning back. He's returning to God. He's repenting. He's being restored into God's presence again. He surrenders. You see, he's realizing he can't outrun God. He's tried, and yet God got him. God pursued him. God threw him into the storm. He put him into the fish. God is not going to give up on him. God is not going to let him go. So Jonah finally turns around and approaches God in prayer. He surrenders. He kisses the hand that strikes him. He renews his fellowship with God. This stubborn runaway, like all of us are, finally turns to God. I think of that story in, in John 6 when, when Jesus is teaching. It's one of the longer uh, teaching passages of Jesus in the gospel. And, and, and this, if you read the chapter, it gets progressively more weird as you read it. You know, it starts out kind of okay, and then at the end, Jesus is talking about people needing to eat his, eat his body and drink his blood, and unless you do that, you, you know, it's just all that stuff. And so the crowds leave. Now everybody's gone. It's just the disciples that are left. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, what are you going to do? Are you going to go like the rest of the people that were here? And Peter turns to him and says this. This is John 6, 68, 69. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter does not understand the words of eternal life any more than the people that had just left. But Peter knows that there's nowhere else he can go. There's no other alternative. There's nobody else who knows better what to do than Jesus. And even though Peter is confused, just like all the other disciples, just like we are most of the time, we know, and Peter knows, there's nowhere else to go. You stay with God because there's no other better option. And sometimes that's all it is. You're saying, I don't understand. I don't like what you're doing. There are passages in Scripture that make no sense to me. I can't imagine that God would approve something like this. You wrestle with all those issues, and yet you say, but we know that you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to experience that you are the Holy One of Israel, and where else are we going to go? What's the better alternative? And so Peter and the disciples stick around. This is sort of what's happening with Jonah. He's tried to run away. God has pursued him, and he's turned around and says, where else am I going to I'm not going to outrun God. I better turn to him. I better learn. I better repent. I better return to God. And as he is doing that, God is working in his heart, and that repentance becomes genuine. And his heart is genuinely turned towards God, and he, his repentance is genuine. God is doing something 
in Jonah's heart, even as his body is limited in the belly of the fish. So he turns to God, and then he repents of his sin. Verse 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So Jonah is confessing a particular sin, and that sin is idolatry. Now, of course, when he says those who pay regard to vain idols, he's talking about the heathen sailors, perhaps that just threw him overboard, or those that are in Nineveh. Yeah, there's a lot of idolaters around. But he's also talking about himself. Why did he run? He ran from the true God because he had pursued other gods, because there are other idols in his life, like the idol of self-righteousness. He didn't want to go and, and talk to the Ninevites. Why is God sending me, a good prophet, to that place? That's an idol, idol of self-righteousness. There's an idol of nationalism. He didn't want the gospel. He didn't want the, the, the God to forgive another nation. In fact, a nation that was not, not maybe an immediate threat, but certainly a rival of Israel at the time. He doesn't want to go do that. So this ethnic idolatry, this, uh, this self-righteous personal idolatry are now exposed. And he's realizing that even though he didn't want to go to the heathens, he is a heathen himself. That his mind has worked like a pagan mind. And so he's repentant of that. He's coming to God and he's saying, I will change. So that's one part of repentance is remorse over your sin and realizing that, that you have done something wrong. The other part, the other half is changing and moving from that sin and, and embracing obedience and embracing holiness. And he's saying, I will pay what I have vowed. He's saying, I will obey. I will go through with what I've promised to you and I promise to serve you and follow your commands and go wherever you send me. And in fact, he does. We know this repentance is true because he follows through on it. He goes to Nineveh and preaches to the Ninevites. Now, does this one experience completely change Jonah? Yes and no. I think he's a different person. But at the same time, he's going to have some of the same struggles for the rest of his life. In fact, the book ends on this decision. And we don't know what Jonah decided. Just because we need to decide. It's, it's pointing at us at the end of the book. But it ends with, with the question, are we going to live in accordance with our experience at conversion? Are we going to live in accordance with the lessons we have learned in the depths? Or are we going to revert back to what Jonah does later in the book when he complains about the forgiveness of Nineveh? So Jonah turns to God, he repents of his sin, and then finally he prays by faith, not by sight. He prays by faith, not by sight. If he were to take an inventory of his circumstances, right, there's no hope. He's in the belly of the fish, which I guess you would say that's lucky, right? Because he didn't, he didn't drown. On the other side, you would say he's going to get digested alive in a fish, so I don't know, maybe not so lucky. But there's no way out. What's he going to do? If you look at the circumstances, they're hopeless, they're desperate. And yet he prays as if he is confident that God is going to save him. In fact, he prays as if God has already rescued him. 
That's, that's how you pray. So he prays not by sight, not by senses, not by the perception of his immediate reality. He prays based on his faith in God, who God is, what God has promised to him, what God said. This is how he prays. In the commentary that I'm using for the book of Jonah, this, this is an old Scottish preacher, Hugh Martin, and he's, he has a chapter, which is a commentary on this passage in Jonah, titled, The Conflict of Faith and Sense. The Conflict of Faith and Sense. Martin says that there is a, there's a battle that's happening here in the belly of the fish. Faith battles sense. The spiritual perception is in conflict with the physical perception. And faith wins. In this particular case, faith wins. The hopefulness of Jonah's prayer in the midst of desperate circumstances is based on faith in God, not on sight. Listen to Martin. Listen to how he describes this victory of faith over sense. This is the victory which faith has to achieve. Surrounded by incidents, events, circumstances, influences, powers, all adverse to your deliverance and salvation. And with your hope, as far as this region of the things seen and temporal is concerned, utterly cut off. Your faith discovers another region, a realm and kingdom unseen, the heavenly places, the sphere of the things that are unseen and eternal. Your faith draws upon them. Faith finds them all good and true, precious and powerful, suitable and superior. For these unseen things are of God. They are the promises and pledges of God and of His Word. For their truth, you have no evidence of sense. The evidence of sense is supposed to be all the other way. But you have the evidence of your Creator's Word. You receive that as good and sufficient, as the very highest evidence possible. You receive it as simply true. You prove that you receive it as true by actually proceeding on it and periling precious issues on it. You peril your hope, your happiness, your peace upon it. You peril your soul upon it forever. You believe in hope when you see no ground of hope. You believe in hope even when all you see is against your hope. Circumstances, nature, creation, sight, sense, plead for the giving up of all hope. And their pleas are strong. Their statements in themselves are true. But over against all these, you place in solitary, unapproachable, surpassing majesty, God. You say, the mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken. And inclining your ear and hearing Him, you believe Him in opposition to all. You hear and your soul does live. You outlive, you live down your despair against hope. You believe in hope. This is the evidence of one's conversion. This is the evidence that God has already changed Jonah's heart. He doesn't operate based on the same perception of reality that he used to. He's in the belly of the fish, but he's praying as if God is present, which of course God is. As if God has promised to preserve him, which of course God did. You see, those words of God, the reality of God, this, this surpassing, right, the unapproachable, the majestic God, 
now controls his understanding of his physical reality. That's the hardest battle. Faith versus sense. That's the hardest battle for every Christian. And it happens and is, is won by faith when the Holy Spirit changes your heart. That's what's happening with Jonah. Is it happening with us? What are you paying attention to? It's not that we can ignore our circumstances. We shouldn't. We should be honest. We should be realistic about what's happening around us. But is it all? Is what we see normative for our reaction? Or other, other realities? Is there another realm, another region to which faith takes us? Where God is where God promises and fulfills his promises, where God rescues us, where God is real. That's the evidence of spiritual life, evidence of conversion. Now, my last point is to look at what Jonah discovered in the depths, in the belly of the fish. Now, we've, I've alluded to something important that he discovered, some spiritual lesson, some truth that he learned and I've sort of talked, talked around it, but now I want to address it straightforwardly. What did he learn by praying in the belly of the fish? It's very simple. He learned the gospel of God's grace. Jonah learned the gospel of God's grace. He has discovered himself now, himself, personally, the very grace that he was so afraid of in the beginning. Remember, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because God might forgive them. That was his reason. We'll, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks, chapter 4. He's very clear that he doesn't want to go because God is gracious and he might forgive his enemies. He might forgive the heathens. So he doesn't go. That grace that scared him now changed him, now transformed him. And so now, he something that he had witnessed before he had seen how God blessed a wicked king and expanded the, the borders of Israel in spite of the sin. Uh, he, he knew from Scripture that God is gracious, that, that God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew that. He knew the Scriptures. But now he has experienced it firsthand. There are so many Christians, and I use the term loosely, so many church people, that know the scriptures, that have seen God extend grace to others around them, and yet that, that have never experienced it themselves. There are a lot of bitter Christians. They're bitter because they have never taken in that grace into their hearts. This is the most important thing we can learn. The gospel is absolutely the most important thing. No exaggeration. It really is the most important thing. This is what it's all about. It's not about hokey pokey. It's about the gospel of grace. I was, I'm sorry, I was at, at the kids' uh, <laughs> kids function and we were dancing and it just it struck me funny. I'm like, oh, this is what it's all about. No, it's not. It's about the gospel. And so we look at this truth that Jonah learns and he learns it in the depth, but this is what it, exactly what he had to learn. What all of us need to learn is that God is gracious to us and it's a personal experience of that grace. And so he learns it. Now, does he know about Jesus? He probably knows some. He knows probably some of the prophecies. He's expecting somebody to come and help Israel. He's looking towards the temple as a symbol of God's presence, but perhaps also as a place of sacrifice. 
So he's looking, he knows that he was supposed to die and yet God rescued him. Something unusual is about that. He knows that he has been running away from God and yet God pursued him. Perhaps there's a sacrifice that covers that. Those are hints in the Old Testament for him. For us, we have the full picture. We know that Jesus died and rose for us. We know that salvation is of the Lord, that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is how the prayer of Jonah ends. And that is a summary of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the truth he learned. That's the truth we need to learn. Salvation belongs to the Lord. How? Well, there's salvation for sinners, but it's not done based on our efforts, on our accomplishments. It's done by the Lord. And it's done through Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose for us. Why does God pursue sinners? Because Jesus died and rose for us. Because somebody paid for us. Because somebody has fulfilled the righteous requirements. And by faith in him, we can experience grace. Jonah learned it. The question is, have we? Have you? Have I learned it? It's not enough to know the scriptures. It's not enough to see and witness it. Have you had a personal experience of grace? And it happens in the depth. It happens in the depth because without personal death and resurrection, we cannot identify with Jesus. There has to be that spiritual death and resurrection for anyone to be converted. So have you discovered the gospel of God's grace? Do you need to be reminded of this gospel this morning? Are you running and hiding from God and need to return? Are you learning about God's grace in the depths? Well, the Lord's table is one such reminder. The Lord's table preaches the gospel of grace to us. And if you don't pay attention to words from the pulpit, another way to learn is to look at the table of his son, where his body is broken, that was supposed to be my body. His blood is spilled, that was supposed to be my blood. But another took my place. And now, through his sacrifice, grace flows into my life and into my heart. And like Jonah, now I can extend that grace to others because I have myself experienced it. Have you?